0: I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting Romans. Our text is Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. In Romans chapter 14, we come to the longest and final scenario of Paul's application section. It covers 36 verses from 14.1 to 15.13. So we'll take three lessons to cover the whole section. Paul's big idea exhortation is to accept one another. We get that command at the beginning of 14.1 and towards the end in 15.7. The command to accept is given to the strong and the weak. There's a disagreement going on here. And before we get into the text, I'm going to go ahead and tell you what I think the problem's all about. Some interpreters argue that we should not think that Paul was aware of any issue going on in the Roman church. They see Paul's argument of the gospel in 1-11 and the other application issues in 12 through 13 as applying to any church in general. What we have here then is another issue that might apply generally to churches Paul experienced in his missionary work. They'd put accepting one another in the same category as exhortation to live as members of the body and to submit to governing authorities. I don't think that's correct. I believe that Paul has shifted here to a specific issue affecting the Romans. As we'll see, the issue fits a church that started with strong Jewish leadership, but then transitioned to Gentile leadership. And also, Paul had plenty of friends in Rome, like his co-workers Priscilla and Aquila, who may have given him a heads up about a particular challenge they faced in their house churches. Other interpreters go in the complete opposite direction, seeing this passage as a primary reason Paul wrote the letter in the first place. They noticed Paul mentioning Jew and Gentile directly in about six passages, and they noticed the emphasis given to Gentile inclusion in chapters 9 through 11, and they argued that the whole gospel presentation in all of those chapters was written as a basis for addressing the practical problem of acceptance raised here in chapter 14. And the positive about this view is the correct recognition of Jew and Gentile inclusion as a consistent motif through Romans and the correct recognition that it is related to the issue that we have here in chapter 14 the problem with the view is that it makes too much out of this issue you know consider the much more problematic issues addressed in churches like galatia and in 1 corinthians it's hard to believe that paul spent 13 chapters here in romans just to set up a base for addressing this problem in chapter 14 And we also need to take care not to oversimplify Romans, just because we recognize this motif that's going on in our second lesson of our series. We recognize that Paul's got multiple purposes for writing. He was writing Romans to introduce himself to that church. He was writing with a missional purpose, with an apologetic purpose, with a pastoral purpose. And as we think about it, each of these purposes is served theologically, as Paul develops the theme of Jew and Gentile inclusion in the gospel. So it's way oversimplifying to suggest that the only reason Paul wrote about all of this is so that he could address this problem that was going on. They're related, but it's more complicated than that. This issue is not the main motive for for writing Romans. That's going too far, but it is right to recognize that the struggle to accept one another over issues relating to Jewish and Gentile experience of the gospel, was causing real problems in Rome. And they're not problems that ended in the first century. The challenge to accept fellow Christians over similar issues continues in our communities. So we need to clarify exactly what's going on here. In the passage, Paul's going to give us three examples of disagreements that the strong and the weak have with one another. First he mentions disagreement over what a person should eat, then he mentions the observance of certain days, and then he adds on drinking wine. Scholars have come up with a variety of possibility of what issues these examples reflect. You know, Are these ascetic Romans who forbid lavish eating and drinking, are they the Stoics? Are they days that are connected to pagan customs? Is Paul worried about people attending pagan celebrations of eating and drinking? What's going on? Well, the text points strongly and clearly, I think, to the practice of certain Roman Christians, maybe mostly Jewish, who believe that Old Covenant ceremonial laws still apply to how a believer ought to live out the Christian life. That understanding fits best with the motive that's run through the whole letter regarding the inclusion of Jew and Gentile in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and with recognizing that Paul is teaching that there is an end to Mosaic Covenant. The issues reflect core issues to Jewish observance of the Mosaic law, which prescribes what foods may be eaten and what days are to be kept as holy Sabbaths. And Paul's strong language in 1414 of clean versus unclean picks up the Jewish way of understanding these food and drink rules. Food and drink could be unclean, either as a direct prohibition of the Mosaic Code, no eating shrimp, no drinking blood, you know, that, those things are always unclean. Or food and drink could be unclean through an incorrect process of preparation. So clean kosher food requires attention to both content, you know, what is the food actually made of, and how is it prepared. So, There's no prohibition on wine in the Old Testament, but there may have been concern among Jews not to drink wine prepared by unclean hands with unclean implements or there may have been concern about wine that's been partially poured out in libation to the gods. If a Jew didn't know the source of the meat or the wine, even if it was not a forbidden food or drink, the Jew might not eat or drink. Daniel made that very decision when he was taken to Babylon. Rather than risking eating something unclean, he ate only vegetables and he just drank water. And in Daniel's case, as one clearly still under the Mosaic Covenant, that was an upright and good decision. The question facing the Christians of Rome was whether any of these requirements still applied to them. Should they abstain like Daniel did? We need to define the issue even more specifically. If we have the promotion of Mosaic law from some Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians, then we have to ask, what were they saying about the importance of keeping those laws? Is it an issue of salvation, or is it an issue of living out salvation? Is it a first question issue, or is it a second question issue? For comparison, we should consider Paul's words about such issues to the Galatians. When Peter stopped eating with Gentiles in Galatia, Paul confronted him publicly. Paul used very strong language in that letter over seemingly similar issues. The difference is that in Galatia, Paul was dealing with a first-question problem, and in Romans, he's dealing with a second-question problem. That is to say that in Galatians, certain Jews had come preaching a legalistic emphasis on keeping the law, which was perverting the gospel of grace. So Paul says there, Even though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Or let him be damned. Paul does not mince words when someone threatens the answer to the first question of covenant. What makes someone acceptable in the eyes of God? The answer is 100% grace received by faith. Any attempt to mix in some law or some moral requirement will be met by Paul with extremely strong language. Yet here in Romans we see very calm and understanding language. And it's not a change made by an older Paul over against the words of a more intense younger Paul. The change is not in Paul, the issue is different. And to find middle ground between Galatians and Romans, we could also go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and 10 or Colossians chapter 2. The language addressing similar issues in those two letters is stronger than Romans and not as strong as Galatians. And this leads me to believe that we are solidly into a second question issue with the Romans. They're not asking about, first question, what makes me acceptable. They're asking about being accepted, how I live. How do I please God with my life as a response to grace? The issue here in Romans is not a legalistic push for salvation by law, but a belief that keeping these laws honors God. It's the belief that it is morally and spiritually right to do these things in our attempt to present ourselves to God as an acceptable offering and sacrifice. And Paul validates this attempt to live for God, but he also urges further renewing of the mind to come to an even better understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can still get even a little more precise about the issues under consideration in these scenarios. We've said they're issues of conscience that have to do with keeping Jewish ceremonial laws, and we've said that they're not a first-question issue, but a second-question issue. We're not saying I need to live out the law to gain salvation, but I want to obey these ceremonial laws as a way of giving honor to God, observing God's Word. So to get a little more precise we need to think about what what is not going on here there is a conflict among the strong and the weak but it is more than a disagreement of opinion i mentioned for example in our passage about spiritual gifts that conflict sometimes arises out of our positive motivations and passions for service you know as the holy spirit's working in us then we we see things that need to be done and these are disagreements about the use of our resources and the strategic direction of our community? Should we spend more time and money on discipleship or more on caring for those in need? Do we need to hire a new music minister or a youth pastor? Are we contributing enough to international missions or should we think more about local evangelism? There's often not an obvious right or wrong decision connected to these disagreements. We have limited resources, limited people, uh, limited time, limited money that we have to figure out how are we going to use them. On the other hand, we're also not talking about immorality in this passage. Paul is not recommending here that we accept the lifestyle of the sexually immoral or defend someone who acts hatefully or dismiss drunkenness. Those are all issues addressed in our previous section about how we ought to live in society and that all those things belong to behaviors of the night but that we've awoken to the day, and we're not to live like that. That's not what we're talking about here. The weak are not the sinful in this scenario, and we're not being told here how to handle immorality in our communities. That's a different case, and so the way that Paul applies acceptance here would not apply in the same way if we were talking about immorality or sin. What we're talking about here are issues of conscience, particularly in relation to ceremonial observance. Some brothers and sisters in the community believe that God wants Christians to keep the Mosaic food laws and to observe certain Mosaic holy days. They felt it would be a sin to not do this, and others disagreed. They believe that the establishment of a new covenant in Jesus Christ has freed Christians from the ceremonial observances of the Mosaic code. Now we, in our day, we experience these kinds of disagreements when we move from one denomination to another, or from one generation to another, or from one culture to another. You know, should we dress up to go to church? How important is that? Should we keep Sunday as the Sabbath? Should we raise our hands in worship? Is it permissible to clap? Should children be kept silent during worship? Should we attend evening service on Sunday? How important is it to go to prayer on Wednesday? How important is it to have a quiet time every single morning? I've encountered a lot of these issues as a Southern American Protestant serving God in Croatia. Think about this. In Split, we attended a Brethren church that encourages head covering and uses real wine drunk out of one common communion cup during the Lord's Supper. We met in a community center that had a photo of the current Pope on the wall And one evening, we invited our crew students to join church members at the community center and watching a World Cup soccer game. So a new student brought to our Brethren Church, which has a photo of the Pope on the wall, a keg of beer to share with everybody. And as I'm just taking this all in, uh, one of our church elders walks into the room. What's his first response? You know, what's your response just Hearing that story, is there anything in there that strikes you as interesting or as odd or as out of place? I remember forgetting to tell the members of a visiting American church team who came to our church that we drank wine, not grape juice, for the Lord's Supper. And one of the women on the team had committed to never drinking alcohol. She had never put alcohol in her mouth, and she just assumed it was grape juice. How do you think she felt when she drank? We have certain rules that we live by. They may come from our interpretation of the Bible, or from our culture, or from our church upbringing, or from a reaction against our church upbringing. But whatever the rules are, we don't agree on all the same rules. So how do we respond to that kind of disagreement within the Christian community? Disagreement that's not clearly sin But it's also not simply disagreement over strategy or resources. These are issues that some have a very strong conviction about, and others do not. Paul's going to help us think about how to approach such issues. The main thing is to accept one another, but it's not that simple. So we need to look closely at what he says and consider how to apply Paul's principles to our communities. We'll consider now 14, 1 through 12. And then we'll pick up the rest in a later lesson. So let's read the text, Romans 14, 1 through 12. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes a day, observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat. And gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God... For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. The pattern to these 12 verses is called a ring pattern. In the beginning, Paul addresses the problem with an exhortation. That's verses 1 to 3. Paul then comes back to restate that problem again at the end in verses 10 to 12. It's in verses 4 to 9 that he develops the problem, and that's where we're going to pick up our two principles to live by. Let's consider the initial exhortation and statement of the problem. So this will be 14, one through 3. It starts off now, accept the one who's weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Paul addresses his exhortation to those who consider themselves strong. He tells them, accept the weak. So we can't get around the fact that Paul considers certain Christians weak in faith. Paul's making a distinction. As we go through the text, we'll see that Paul does not mean that they are weak in their faith in Jesus Christ. He's using faith here in a broader sense. Their faith is what they believe. It's the gospel. They are weak in some aspect of their understanding of the implications of the gospel. They haven't figured out Correctly, how to apply the gospel to certain aspects of life. And Paul expects the strong to accept the weak. The Greek word literally means to welcome. So, to accept is to receive, to welcome. The strong are not supposed to do this for the purpose of passing judgment on the opinions of the weak, they're not to treat the weak as weak or as second-class citizens. They're not to invite them in, but then look down on them. The acceptance is a wholehearted welcome into fellowship, and it should come from the heart. The next two verses give us more insight into the problem. Paul says, One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. So, our first specific example is about kosher food laws. The weak person avoids any possible contamination by eating only vegetables. And Paul doesn't actually call the other side strong here. He does in 15 verse 1, but here he only uses the word weak. I'm just assuming the other side is the strong. Perhaps for now, Paul doesn't want to overly build up the maturity of the strong or the pride of the strong. A person can be strong in understanding the freedom of the gospel and yet show great immaturity in how they apply that freedom even to the harm of others. In fact, I think this is quite a natural response to growing up in an overly conservative or overly um, say legalistic Christian community. And when young believers figure out that in the gospel, a lot of the rules that have been applied to them shouldn't really apply. They can throw those off so freely that they don't even think about how their actions harm other people. They're just expressing their freedom in the gospel. And that's not a bad thing. That's a first step. If, if they truly were being bound by rules that aren't rules of Jesus, then understanding that their acceptance is by grace and not by keeping all of these expectations of other people, then that's a move forward. But it's not maturity. That kind of strong understanding of the implication of the gospel is not maturity until they realize how their behavior also may affect others, and then they're willing to allow their liberty in some cases to be subsumed by their love for other brothers and sisters. So Paul doesn't call them strong here. Maybe he doesn't want to overdo it, but he does call the weak, weak. The verbs used for each side of the argument fit well, contempt from the strong, and judgment from the weak. You can imagine a younger generation of Christians having grown up in a conservative church, feeling the freedom to smoke a cigar at a guy's night, or to have just one beer, or to play basketball on Sunday. They know their Bible, they know the gospel, they know they're not acting immoral, and when the other side starts talking about the sin of alcohol, or smoking, or the need to keep the Sabbath, they ask, Isn't the Sabbath on Saturday? And isn't the prohibition against getting drunk, not against just alcohol as a drink? And so they look down with contempt on those who uphold these prohibitions as though they're stuck in some bygone era of no dancing and no card playing, no playing pool, no going with girls who do. And those Christians look back at them with judgment. You know, if they drink one beer, certainly they'll drink more. And if they smoke a cigar, they're just tempting God. And keeping the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. So they judge the lack of spirituality in this new generation of liberated Christians. Paul's exhortation is not, argue until you win the other side over. That's not what he says. Paul says, accept one another. Paul understands this reality that there are always going to be Christians at different places in the process of transformation. Unity does not come from unified thought, and unity does not come from pretending that all opinions are equally valid. Paul does actually call one position weak and the other position strong. He gives away which position he believes to line up with true gospel faith. But winning the argument over these issues does not guarantee a win for the community. Paul's exhortation to acceptance is not acceptance on the outside, but acceptance on the inside. Internally, we trust Jesus to work in our hearts to take away the pride of contempt and the pride of judgment. And we trust Jesus to replace that pride with the humility of love, and the humility of acceptance. This is a win for the community. When both the weak and the strong show enough maturity to accept from the heart those they disagree with over issues of conscience. In the next section, verses 4 through 9, Paul gives us two principles or two perspectives that help us with this exhortation of accepting one another. He gives us the principle of the master and the principle of faith. The principle of the master runs through the whole section. Let's read it. I believe the text speaks for itself. I think you're going to get this easily. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, and another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He observes the day, observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, For the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself and not one of us dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Jesus Christ died and rose again to take his rightful place as Lord. He is the Messiah. He is the king of heaven. He is the head of the body. The church is his. We owe to him our life and our allegiance. Each Christian is a servant of Christ Jesus the king. Each Christian is responsible to live for Jesus. Each Christian will give an account to Jesus. This is the principle of the master. This is our perspective as we consider each of our brothers and sisters in Christ, that each one of us, has a responsibility to live for Jesus as Lord. It's a freeing principle. My brother has six children. It's not unusual to hear the youngest say to another sibling, you're not the boss of me. And that's the truth. Even though she still has something to learn about delegated authority, she really does only have one mom and one dad, and each of us only has one ultimate boss, in regard to issues of conscience. You do have a role in the lives of other Christians, but you're not their master. We discuss and argue and consider together, knowing that iron sharpens iron, but when all has been said, you are not their master. You may be an elder or a pastor or a leader, you may have some delegated authority, and you may have to set the direction and the policies of community and discipline, immorality, and sin, but when that is all set, You're not their master over issues of conscience. And there is freedom here. You don't have to be their master. It's not your responsibility. You are free from the responsibility of having to get others to conform to your sense of propriety. We have to let each other be in process when it comes to issues of conscience. We have to recognize the principle of the master. We also need to recognize the principle of faith. This comes out in verse 5. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Remember that the issues here are not moral issues. These are not clear sin issues. Jesus is the end of the law. Christians are released from the food laws of the Mosaic Code, but some struggled with letting go of that code. As modern Christians, we've lived so long eating shrimp and crab and bacon and barbecue that we can hardly relate. But try to imagine that you grew up in a culture that defined religious identity over a period of 1,500 years through these food laws and through keeping the Sabbath and through circumcision, the big three. and It's like baptism, first communion, and confirmation. There are rituals that defined for Jews not only their religious faith, but who they were as a people. Their religious and national and ethnic identity, all rolled up into one, was expressed and felt through these ceremonies and practices. And they had the additional weight of scripture. They're not just customs. These were prescriptions of Mosaic law. And now the Messiah's come. And God has given Peter a vision of a sheet descending out of heaven three times and he says, eat. And then God sends Peter to the home of a Gentile to enter in and enjoy fellowship. Peter still, when he gets to Galatia, is going to really struggle with these things and he's going to get confronted by Paul, the Apostle Paul, the former Pharisee who's begun to preach freedom from the covenant of Moses and a new obligation to practice the new covenant of Christ. But as a Jew who grew up with this, or as a Gentile who came under Jewish influence and Jewish leadership and began following God before you understood the gospel of Jesus Christ, it just feels so wrong. You just can't make yourself believe that it's okay for Christians, especially Jewish Christians, to give up on these practices that have been so important and are so ingrained in your sense of values. You know you're saved by grace through faith, You just can't eat. You just can't give up your Sabbath practices. You just can't give up feeling that it's wrong to give them up. You understand the arguments, but it still feels wrong. Paul gets this, and so he writes, Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. And that's our second principle. It's the principle of faith. If you believe that it is sin to eat pork and you go ahead and eat pork, then for you it's a sin because you have done what you believed was wrong to do and you stand before Jesus as your master. You must act faithfully before him. And in this way Paul can say, he who eats does so for the Lord for he gives thanks to God and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. It's not that the action itself is relative, that it's both a sin and it's not a sin. Paul would argue it's not a sin to eat pork. You can eat pork. That's why he calls that group strong. But he does argue that if you think it's a sin, then for you, it would be a sin. In that sense, it's relative to your understanding of what God is calling you to do. And conversely, if you obey your conscience, whether to eat or not, then it's morally commendable because you're eating or you're not eating out of your relationship with God and you're out of your heart, you're giving thanks to God. So what you're doing, whether required or not, you're doing out of a true heart for God. It's not just a religious ceremony for you. It's a sincere attempt to live out the second question of covenant. How then can I live to please my God? And if that's what we're really striving for, then there's no place for contempt. And there's no reason to despise and there's no cause for judgment, not when we act out of faith and we entrust each one to his master, who is Jesus Christ. We close this passage by restating the issue in verses 10 to 12. And notice how Paul repeats his use of the language of judgment and contempt, which opposes true acceptance. And notice his repeated call to remember that we each stand before God and must give an account to him we will give an account not only on how strong or weak we were in regard to issues of conscience, but more importantly, we'll give an account on how sincerely we sought to accept our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ over these types of issues. Let's close this lesson just with reading these last three verses. Let's just read them. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me. Every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. If you would like the text of this lesson with some resource questions, Or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of Romans, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.